0: He is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him. See, I've told you. So they departed quickly from the tomb with fear and great joy and ran to tell his disciples. And behold, Jesus met them and said, Greetings. And they came up and took hold of his feet and worshipped him. Then Jesus said to them, Do not be afraid. Go and tell my brothers to go to Galilee, and there they will see me. May God bless the reading of his word.
1: All right, well, it's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Day. This is the high-water mark of the entire Christian calendar. I mean, in, in a lot of ways, Christmas probably gets more press culturally, Uh, And don't get me wrong, I mean, God arriving on earth as a human, like, big deal, okay? We're not going to minimize that at all, but today, today's the day that makes Christianity Christianity. Today's the day that is the center of what the Bible talks about, the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. Now, before we dive in and take a closer look at the historical events that we just heard read from Matthew 28, Um, I want us to actually consider a different historical event, one that's a little bit more recent in history. There is one court case that probably stands as the most important, most famous court case in U.S. history. It involved the most powerful men and women in the world. The very name of this scandal has spawned countless copies and rip-offs for the past 40 years, things like Spygate, Deflategate, Russiagate, Apparently there's even a donut gate. Hadn't heard of that one until I looked on Wikipedia yesterday. The case, uh, This original case resulted in the only resignation of a standing U.S. president. Of course, what we're talking about is Watergate. Now, when Richard Nixon was running for re-election in 1972, he paid five men out of a campaign slush fund to break into the Democratic National Committee headquarters at the Watergate building. And when these men were arrested, a massive cover-up and investigation ensued. But Richard Nixon's direct involvement was always questioned. It was always suspected, but it was never proven um, until one key piece of evidence uh, came to light. The crux of the entire case, the Watergate tapes, okay? what became known as the smoking gun. Nixon recorded every conversation he had in the Oval Office And just days after the arrest, he's recorded having conversations that show his direct involvement in not only the cover-up, but the initial crime as well. He resigned shortly after these tapes were released. See, before the tapes, there was testimonials, there was circumstantial evidence, there was actually really, really good reason to suspect his involvement. But that one key thing, that one key piece of evidence sealed the deal. The smoking gun. Just one short conversation. Well, it might be funny to put it this way, but these ten verses that we just read out of Matthew 28, these are the. This is the Bible's smoking gun. Okay, this the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, bodily, historical resurrection. This is the one key piece of evidence on which the whole story of Christianity stands or falls. See, without this historical event, there are probably still really, really good reasons to suspect that Christianity is true. There's compelling teachings. There's uh, insights into our life. It tells us important things about God and ourselves and the way the world works. But this passage, the smoking gun of the Bible, confirms everything we hope is true. Because unlike Watergate a story that incriminated a few men, sent them to prison, this piece of evidence verifies a story that brings life and hope to the whole world. If this event is true, it changes more than the fate of a presidency or even a nation. It changes everything about your life now and forever. The point on which all of this rests is just one ancient Greek word that's translated in this story in verse 6, as he is risen. Thank you. Yeah, I might say that more than once in this sermon, so you kind of got to be on your toes. We'll see. I'm not saying nothing else in the Bible matters except this one phrase, but I'm saying everything in the Bible only matters if this short phrase is actually true. In fact, the Bible even tells us that much. The Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 15 says, if Christ hasn't been raised... Your faith is futile, and you're still in your sins. In other words, if this phrase isn't real, the rest of it's a wash. He says, if the dead aren't raised, let's eat and let's drink, for tomorrow we die. None of this matters unless this one Greek word is true. This is the linchpin. And it's this passage, in this passage, Matthew shows us why. Why this phrase, why this fact is so central, why everything hangs on it. In the conversation between the angel and the two women, both named Mary, outside of the empty tomb of Jesus Christ, three truths about the resurrection of Jesus emerge that show us why it's the most important fact that you and I could ever consider in our lives. We're going to see in this passage, the resurrection isn't merely a good teaching. It's not merely a, a good idea, but it's a past historical event, a thing that happened. We're going to see that the resurrection confirms all of God's future promises to his people. And then finally, we're going to see the resurrection has profound personal implications for our present life. In other words, the resurrection makes sense of our past, our present, and our future. This thing has the power to hold our entire lives together, to give coherence and meaning to everything we do. So before we jump in, let me say one word of prayer and we'll look at this passage together for a few moments. Jesus, we do ask that as we open your word, the word that you promise is filled with the life-giving power of your Holy Spirit, that we would meet you, the resurrected King, that we would encounter you, that we would understand and learn about you, but most of all that you would grow our hearts to trust and delight in all that you've done on our behalf. We ask these things in your name. Amen. All right, so first, we see that the resurrection is an event in history, not just a cool theological idea. In verse 1, we read that Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to the tomb where Jesus had been buried. And the thing they least expected to happen happens. An angel appeared to them and announced that Jesus had been raised from the dead. Do not be afraid. I know that you seek Jesus who was crucified. He's not here He is risen, he said. Then notice, what is the command that the angel gives these women next? After he announces that a dead man has just come out of the grave and is no longer dead, what's the next thing the angel encourages the first witnesses of the resurrection to do? Verse 6, he invites them and he says, come and see the place where he lay. Now I find that an interesting invitation. I think that's an interesting next comment for the angel to make after announcing this crazy claim, right? I mean, this crazy idea. He's not dead anymore. He's out walking around. And why this this invitation to investigate the data? He doesn't say, whatever you do, don't enter the tomb. Take it on faith. Just believe. I'm an angel, after all. You can trust me. Okay? He doesn't say that. Nor does he say, you know, by asking too many questions or voicing doubts or investigating these pretty wild claims I'm making... You really are showing a huge amount of distrust in Jesus. I don't think he'd be very happy with your questions. He doesn't say that either, does he? What does this angel say? He says the very opposite. He invites investigation. He says, look at the facts, reason it out. What do you think is the best historical explanation for the data, the the experience, the evidence that you have before you? I love this about Christianity. Christianity. This is one of my favorite things about the Bible. It's constantly telling us to turn our brains on, not off. Right? The gospel, the offer of salvation through Jesus, is good news that's rooted in historical facts and it can be reasoned, it can be investigated. The more we think about it, the more sense the story begins to make of our life. One theologian I like put it this way, the Christian does not get a lobotomy when he or she makes the decision to be a disciple. Kind of graphic. Jesus wants his people to be honest, to think about their faith, to be able to investigate its problems. And nowhere is this more true than in this passage and the ones like it in the Bible, the central claim of the resurrection of Jesus. It urges us to ask, is this passage and others like it in the Bible trustworthy, historically reliable, reasonable to believe. Is this a logical faith? Well, clearly we don't have time to delve into all the historical data this morning. Okay, So instead of doing that, I'm just going to offer a summary of someone who's far smarter than myself. This is like a pro-pastor move. Like when when you're out of your depths a little bit, you just cite the experts and the pro. This guy is smart. Considered the world's leading expert on the history of Surrounding this event, N.T. Wright says this about the resurrection No other explanations have been offered in 2,000 years of sneering skepticism towards the Christian witness that can satisfactorily account for how the tomb came to be empty, how the disciples saw Jesus in bodily form, and how the lives and worldviews were transformed. The alternate accounts of these facts are actually remarkably thin, he says. I've read most of the current ones, and some of them are quite laughable. He goes on to say, in terms of the kind of proof which historians normally accept, the historicity of the resurrection is actually as watertight as you're likely to find. Uh, this is a guy you know, who's a casual professor at Cambridge and other places, so he knows his stuff. But the question is, in other words, he's saying this thing happened. This is a a historical event that happened, but our question is, why does it matter? Why does the Bible put such great emphasis on the fact that this is a historical event? Why does it encourage us to investigate the facts, look into it, pursue it, run it down? Why is the angel's first words to the Marys after this claim to investigate the facts? Here's the reason. This event, the resurrection is what makes Christianity unique among all other religions, faiths, worldviews, and ways of doing life. The teachings of Christianity, okay, the the doctrines, the examples that are set in the Bible, um, all of that comes secondary to this historical fact. In any other religion or worldview, it's actually the teachings that are the most important thing, and the historical circumstances around them come second, but not with Christianity. For example, at some point in high school, um, most of us learned that Thomas Jefferson was the main author of the Declaration of Independence. Okay? It's like a fact that we have filed somewhere back in the depths. Trust me, you learned it in high school. All right? um, that's probably true. Best historical evidence points to that fact. Okay? But if for some reason it turns out that historical fact weren't true, that the best scholarship all of a sudden discovered that someone uh, wrote the Declaration of Independence, slapped Thomas Jefferson's name on it, presented it to the first Congress, and said, hey, look at what, what, look what Tommy came up with last night, um, because he had more street cred you know, back in the day. Like, If that is actually what happened, um, I think most of us would respond by saying, huh, Fascinating. <laughs> what a weird quirk of history, right? But we probably wouldn't immediately turn in our U.S. passports and revoke our American citizenship. Why? Because the ideas in the Declaration of Independence are true whether or not the historical circumstances around them come into question, okay? The, the fact that men are created equal, that they're endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that's true, whether or not the historical circumstances surrounding it are true. Um, but this is not the case with Christianity. And this is what makes it so fascinating. Paul says, if this event, the resurrection, a dead man walking out of his grave, if that didn't happen in real time, in real history, forget the teachings, forget the ideas, forget the doctrines. Christianity is rooted in this historical fact, Christianity alone. And this is actually incredibly good news when you start to think about it. And this brings us to the second reason why all of Christianity hangs on the resurrection and how it holds our life together. It's not just a past historical event. It's a confirmation of all the future promises that God has lavished on his people. Let's pick up again in verse 5. The angel says to the women, do not be afraid. I know you're looking for Jesus who was crucified. He's not here. He's risen, just as he said he would. You see, during his ministry, Jesus said a number of times, three separate times at least, probably more, that to, and he told his followers that he would be killed and he would rise again. He told everybody this was going to happen. Okay, It was so outrageous, they still couldn't quite believe it as it was happening, but he, he set it up. He, he told his crew, this is what's going to happen. In fact, in Matthew 16, we read, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders, the chief priests, the scribes, be killed, and on the third day be raised. Why must Jesus do this? Why was this a necessity of his life? Why was this God's plan from eternity past? that he be killed on a cross and then raised to new life. Why does the whole gospel crumble apart from these combined historical events? Because when Jesus is raised from the dead, everything he accomplished in his life and death on the cross for his people is sealed and confirmed and guaranteed forever. Notice how the angel refers to Jesus as the one who was crucified. This is his identity. This is his identity forever. He will always be the crucified Jesus. He carries the scars from his death into heaven. He reigns right now as the crucified king. He will always be the one who is crucified. And that's incredibly good news because that means everything that happened in his crucifixion is sealed into eternity forever. Listen to 1 Peter, the way he explains this for us. Blessed be the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's what? Imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. In other words, the resurrection is the guarantee, it's the confirmation, it's the seal of everything we've ever been promised in Jesus. Every gospel promise is guaranteed, totally secure, imperishable, undefiled, waiting in heaven for you. Sometimes when you're talking about this stuff that's so unique, analogies become really difficult. I mean, what do you, what do you, how do you make an analogy to the something that only happened once ever in human history and is one of the most miraculous claims. But we can try, okay? So um, I I think this is something like a wealthy, rich parent co-signing on a bank account for their child, okay? The child can go out and he can write his checks and they are guaranteed to be good, not just because of the resources of the person writing the checks, but because of the estate that has backed them, right? Because of the the riches that stand behind those checks that are going out into the world. Jesus is pouring out his gifts into this world, his treasure. He's giving it away to his people. He is depositing checks in your spiritual bank account that are going to be there for eternity. And those checks are backed by the resurrection power of God. Okay, the resurrection is God's signature that says every gift that Jesus has has extended to his people, every spiritual deposit he makes in your account, it's good. I'm guaranteeing it. I've underwritten it. I promise it will be there for eternity. Jesus by definition cannot default on the promises that he has extended to his people. And consider just for a minute, some of the promises that are yours in Jesus. The riches he deposits in your account by sheer grace. Your sins are forgiven. Your shame and your guilt have been removed. He's adopted you into his very own family. He'll bring you to completion. All the ways that we're sort of just partially down the road, on the journey, he'll fix everything. He'll bring you to perfection. Every hurt will be healed. Every good thing, every sad thing, ugly thing, joyful thing, heartbreaking thing that ever happens to you in your life, he will use for your good and for the good of the world. God will raise you from death in the very same way he raised his son Jesus. These are just a few of the checks, spiritual checks that Jesus deposits in your account and in my account. And the resurrection guarantees them forever. This is why it's so important that the crucifixion and the resurrection aren't just good teachings or good ideas or sort of encouraging stories, but that they're facts, that they're rooted in history because if they're objective and they're true, that means a whole new power is at work in our world, something the world has never known before, and that the promises of God aren't just good ideas, but they're eternal facts, and they can be facts about you if you're with Jesus. And this brings us to our third and final reason that the resurrection has the power to hold our entire life together. The resurrection is, it's a past event that guarantees a certain future with God, but the resurrection of Jesus also has profound present implications for our everyday lives. Now, today, I mean tomorrow, when we get up and go to work on a Monday morning, the resurrection matters then too. Uh, because knowing your future shapes how you live in the present. Now, there's a lot of ways this is true, but anybody with kids definitely knows this is true, okay? So uh, when I was a young man, long, long ago, before I had any children, I spent about no time, zero time, thinking about safety ratings on infant cribs. I spent no time investigating and looking up various minivan options, right? Furthest thing from my mind. But all of that changed when I knew my certain future, didn't it? When I knew, when when my when my wife and I found out that we were pregnant with our first son and that in a number of months he would be joining our family, that certain future imposed itself on my presence And I started doing things I had never done before in my entire life, okay? I started caring about things I'd never cared about. I started researching things I'd never heard about a day before, things with strange names like Bumbo and Bjorn, right? I mean, my my world changed because my future was imposing on my present life. He wasn't here yet. Our firstborn wasn't here yet. But that anticipation and that hope changed the way I lived, changed the way I Spent my money, changed the way I spent my time, changed the way I prayed my prayers. The resurrection of Jesus does the same thing for every one of his followers. It reorients our life around that certain future. That future imposes itself on our present and reorients us. Look at verse 7 in our passage this morning. The angel says to the Marys, go quickly, tell his disciples he is risen from the dead and behold, he is going before you to Galilee, and there you will see him. In this short verse, we actually see everything we've been talking about so far this morning. The holistic importance of the resurrection for our life. Jesus has been raised from the dead in the past. He will meet his disciples again in the future. And in between, the, the, the Mary's life is framed by these resurrection facts, isn't it? And they're given special instructions on how to live in the in-between. A new mission. The angel says, go and tell. Go and tell all that you've seen. Go and share the news of these new facts. It's a simple summary of so much of the Christian life. Go into the world. Tell the good news that you've heard. Jesus has been raised. The world is different now than it was. Great promises have been sealed for his people. They can be yours if you want them. Believe this good news. Knowing the future of the resurrection reshapes the mission of our life today. Those who trust in Jesus will be raised to eternal life with them. And like Jesus, there's going to be a strong carryover, a strong continuity between our life in this world and our life in heaven. See, what the resurrection does is it brings eternal value to the physical world that we live in. It brings eternal value to our physical bodies, the stuff we're made of. Jesus wasn't raised to a spirit he was raised to a man who ate fish and was hungry and met his buddies on the beach and had a campfire and went fishing with them. Okay? like Jesus is a physical body reigning in heaven now and it brings great dignity to everything that it means for us to be human. Our intellectual lives, our emotional lives, even our cultural lives, what we create, what we do, there's strong carryover into eternity because of the resurrection. See, if that's true, then nothing is meaningless today because of the resurrection. No task is too mundane. No person is too awkward or too boring. No relationship is too difficult to lose eternal meaning if resurrection life awaits us. Let's close with this story. Um, About 10 years ago, Again, this was also pre-kids. Uh, Janet and I had the chance to go to Paris for a week, which was amazing. First and only time I've been there. But while we were there, we saw all the sites, or as many as we could cram into five days, right? We saw it all. Uh, and we definitely saw the amazing cathedral, Notre Dame. I mean, for those of you who have been and have seen it in person, it is just imposing, okay? It's huge. Uh, this was an amazing structure, not just because it's so enormous, but because of the innovation that went into it to be able to build it so big and so high so early um, in, uh, in, in history. It was begun in 1160. It wasn't finished until 1345. So, um, you know, those of you who are in construction that think your, t- your projects are taking forever, this one took 185 years, Okay. So 50 years into the project, they were already on their fourth architect. So you can imagine something like what this process would have been like. The architect draws up his plans and hands out different portions of the project to his foreman. And those foremen go off and make individual assignments. Okay? So the stone foreman gets his, gets his uh, overview and he assigns a particular cut of stone to a mason in his shop. That Mason gets his assignment, his mission, and he sets to work. He works hard on his stone, but at the end of the day, that poor guy got a really, really boring stone, okay pretty much his job was like flat edges, straight corners, you know this sort of thing um, and uh, he, he works hard on it, he invests his life in it, he hands it over, and when he 's done, and he has no idea where it's even going to end up in the final project, and almost certainly he's not going to live to see where that stone goes or the final realized building that he's contributing to. And so he's got to ask at some point, how can this matter? Like, what's the point? I'm devoting my life to this. I'm working hard. I'm going to do it well. But like, you know, where is this all going? But at the end of the day, he trusts the architect, doesn't he? He trusts that the work he's done, remaining obedient to his task, working with all the skill he can muster, won't be wasted and it won't be meaningless and it will contribute to a final realized product. And the amazing thing is, the amazing thing is that when the whole project is complete, his individual work somehow becomes more than it was when it was just a stone sitting on the floor of his shop. It's taken up into something greater than it could have been all by itself. Again, N.T. Wright writes this. You are, you are, strange though it may seem, almost as hard to believe as the resurrection itself, accomplishing something that will become in due course part of God's new and eternal world. Every act of love, gratitude, and kindness, every minute spent teaching a severely handicapped child to read or walk, and of course every prayer, every deed that spreads the gospel and makes the name of Jesus honored, in the world, all of this will find its way through the resurrecting power of God into the new creation that God will one day make. That, he says, is the logic of the mission of God. The future fact of the resurrection life with Jesus seeps into our present world and brings great dignity to everyone we meet and to everything we do. It it raises this sometimes mundane, boring, everyday life to something of eternal value. Everything matters now if the resurrection is true. The power of the resurrection event recorded in Matthew. That good news has the power to hold our whole life together. It has the power to make sense of our past, our future, and our present. It brings great coherence and dignity to who we are. What a beautiful truth. Imagine if it was true. What if Jesus Christ had died on the cross, rose up, and is alive today, reigning as king? How would that change your life? How would that change our church? How would that change this valley? Imagine if this fact was true. What a beautiful hope. Christ has risen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for giving us this word from Matthew. We thank you that uh, Jesus Christ is not somewhere in a grave right now in the Middle East, but that he is reigning in heaven as our king, and that through his resurrection power, there is hope, and there is life, and there is coherence to our world. I pray that you would help us understand it, investigate it, seek out the truth of what happened that day, and Jesus, that it would totally reorient our life that our life would revolve around the fact that you have raised from the dead. Jesus, you are king, and we worship you. Amen.